0: Good morning. You have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to turn to Matthew 24, and maybe also Daniel 9. Though we do have one more sermon left in 1 John, that'll be next week. We're going to do eight weeks, starting today on the Olivet Discourse, from Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25. I was asked in the last service, uh, can you have my manuscript? Because I go kind of move rapidly, uh, you can. If you uh, email the church and uh, the office, uh, we'll get you the manuscripts for these eight sermons a couple days after I preach each one. No pressure. I don't care if anyone wants a manuscript, but I've already been asked. So I do actually manuscript all my sermons. So let's pray. Father God, uh, as we talk about the end times, we talk about areas where godly, sincere, wise, and educated Christ followers have looked at details and come to slightly divergent conclusions. May you allow us to have charity and grace, and our finger always on the biblical text, and allow us, Father, to see what you would have us see in your word. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. The year was 1993. It was the NCAA Division II Cross Country Championships. There are 128 runners. A cross country course is 6.2 miles and they had already walked the course. They ostensibly knew the course, but with a mile and a half to go, the lead group went the wrong way. Mike Del Cavo of Western State in Colorado cried out to the lead group, you're going the wrong way. This is the right path. But they ignored him. In fact, out of 128 runners, 123 ignored him and they went the wrong way. They actually ran a six mile rather than a 6.2 mile course. Mike and four others finished the course as it was designed And then there was all sorts of confusion of what we're going to do. And in a very highly criticized decision, the officials decided that those who ran the wrong course, who created their own course, would be allowed to create their own course. So for someone like Mike, he literally lost 70 places from where he was when he went the right way and the other group went the wrong way. And I read that and it reminds me that the majority is not always right. It also reminds me that what is right is not always rewarded, at least not right now. And that is true when it comes to God's morals, God's ethics, God's truth. The majority is not always right, in fact, I would say the majority often is wrong morally, ethically, scripturally. And those who are adhering to scripture are not always initially rewarded, but someday, and that day is coming, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But for now, we are warned over and over again in scripture that there are a lot of false teachers, false prophets, false teaching that will permeate the world. And the closer we get to the imminent return of Christ, the more false teaching, false prophets, and false teachers we should expect to emerge in our world. The Bible tells us that there will be those like Judas, who purported to be a disciple, was called a disciple, and yet John 6 tells us he was a devil, Those Judases will arise. In this regard, I think of Judas goats and Judas cows. Maybe that's a phrase you know. It's from yesteryear or still perhaps in small slaughterhouses exist today. This is a special trained goat. A special trained cow who has leadership abilities among goats and cows and gains the trust of herds. And then when they're in the the vicinity of a slaughterhouse and they're clearly nervous and they have to go up the plank, this particular Judas cow or Judas goat, he goes first or she goes first, looks behind, kind of nods. So the group follows, stops, pauses, nods some more and gains the trust. And when they get to the top of the plank, there's a door on the left which the Judas goat or the Judas cow goes through and all the rest of the herd goes to the right to the slaughterhouse. That's a terrible illustration, isn't it? It's brutal. And yet it's what the Bible says is going to happen. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And all along the way, we are warned that there are Judases, false teachers, false prophets, false teaching that permeate our land. Today you and I are going to start a study of the Olivet Discourse. We're going to look at it from Matthew's version, Matthew 24 and 5. It's the teaching that Jesus gave from the Mount of Olives, which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's predominantly on the end times. It tells us what is going to happen and how we ought to be prepared for what is going to happen. Now, if you're familiar with the Mount of Olives, it's part of the old city. Today, Jerusalem has about 850,000 people, but the old city has 2,400. The Mount of Olives is part of the old city. It's today a glorified cemetery But in Jesus' day, this is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It was filled with olive trees. And it was there that Jesus taught the Olivet Discourse. I want to pick up in Matthew. We're going to look at verses 3 to 8 of chapter 24. As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pangs. When Jesus talks about the end times, he starts out in verse 3, and he talks about this phrase, the end of the age. He actually doesn't define it for us. This is a bit of a challenge, and perhaps it has created a number of interpretations What is the end of the age? I'm gonna go to Daniel to try and define the end of the age, to set the stage for Matthew 24 and 25. I will define the end of the age based on Daniel, based on the book of Revelation, as a time in which Christ removes his church, ushering us into the tribulation, including what older theologians call the great tribulation, the last half of the seven years, The tribulation is Revelation 6 to 18, where God will pour out 21 judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls, and it will continue to get worse and worse. Thus, older theologians call the last three and a half years the great tribulation. All call the entire thing the great tribulation. It will be a terrible time for those who are on earth. Daniel, I think, sets the stage. I don't have time to preach the book of Revelation today, but Daniel 9, 6, and seven kind of summarizes most of the end time passage in all of scripture. Let's read from Daniel 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So we're starting out with a time period in which Jerusalem needs to be built or rebuilt. To the coming of an anointed one, a prince. That's gotta be Jesus. There should be seven weeks. It's a Hebrew phrase, weeks, weeks. It probably means year. Seven sevens is 49 years. So it's talking about a period that's 49 years long. Then for 62 weeks, That would be 62 times seven, 434 years. So we have 49 years plus 434 years. It shall be built again. So Jerusalem has to be built a second time with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, the last section, that 434 years, an anointed one, Jesus, will be cut off. He's going to be crucified and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, seems to be a second prince. What does Satan want to do? He wants to imitate the first prince. So the second prince is the Antichrist. It's a human inhabited by Satan himself for the purpose of being worshiped. And the people of the second prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So he's going to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem, as well as the sanctuary, the temple. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Seven years, he's going to make a strong covenant. We might call this like a United Nations covenant. He's going to purportedly tell people it's for peace. But it's not for peace, it's to lead people into idolatry, into worship of him. And for half of the week, three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, which means there has to be another temple. Because you can't have sacrifices today, you don't have a temple. And on the wing of abominations shall come the one who makes desolate. He's talking about 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. The abomination is where he will set up a likeness, a selfie of himself in the rebuilt temple and demand that people worship him rather than God. That's the ultimate abomination. He will steal the glory of God or at least attempt to do so until the decree is ended and it's poured out on the desolator. That is the Antichrist will eventually end up in the lake of fire. What a text. Let me unpack it a little bit. Verse 25 talks about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed a number of times, but several prominent times. Clearly, this is talking about 605 and 586, when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and destroyed the city. And it remained desolate, right, until Nehemiah chapter 2. During the Medo-Persian Empire, Nehemiah, who really had not seen where his people are from Jerusalem, was raised up by God to ask the king to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls because he's heard that the city walls are destroyed and that is bringing reproof on the name of God. We know that year. It's 444 B.C we know it from Jewish history, we know it from Medo-Persian history, we know the date. And from that year, there shall be seven sevens, 49 years, and 62 sevens, 434 years, putting together before the anointed one, Jesus Christ, is glorified and then cut off. Well, a Jewish calendar in those days had 360 days, not 365. So we can multiply 49 years plus 434 years times 360 days. And we can actually arrive at the date in which they cried out Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the date happens to be March 30, 33 AD. We can do that from the Bible. And this is the remarkable thing. Those who would say, well, a redactor took Daniel's manuscript, if it was really even written by Daniel, and they fudged these things later. But that doesn't work with the Dead Sea Scrolls, because we have copies of Daniel that are 200 years before the time of Christ. In other words, Daniel predicted five centuries before the birth of Christ, When Jesus would enter the city, when he would be declared Hosanna, which means save us. And a few days later, they would cry out, crucify us. And the anointed one would be cut off so that we would have 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, the father made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. But not only was Jesus cut off, but verse 26 predicted a second destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened when? AD 70, right? You remember from eighty sixty-six to AD 70, Rome, under a series of emperors, we really have four emperors in like four years, but it's under Vespasian, who they come and destroy Jerusalem. And you remember Vespasian's son is Titus, General Titus, Who will become the emperor. And he says to his men. Destroy the city. Do not destroy the temple on the temple mount. But we are told by both Roman history. And biblical history. That one of Titus's men took a torch. And he threw it into the archway of the temple. And there's massive tapestries that caught on fire. Now you remember the temple is covered with what? Gold all over the walls and the ceilings. And we have an inferno and all the gold melts and it seeps between the stones on the floor of the temple. And when it cools down, Titus's men tear up the floor to get at the gold, a little personal booty. And what did Jesus say in verse two of today's text? He says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one stone left that will not be thrown down. And so we have, again, biblical history. We have historical history melting perfectly. They tore up the floor. They destroyed the temple. And Jesus said, not one stone will lie upon another. And that's true because they went after the melted gold. At this point, 69 of 70 of Daniel's weeks are completed. And there seems to be an indefinite hiatus between those first 69 weeks and the 70th. At this point, I believe it's been 2,000 years before Daniel's 70th week. I understand Daniel's 70th week to be the beginning of the birth pangs I believe it is the removal of the church. The Greek word is parousia. Paul calls it the blessed hope in Titus 2.13. In Latin, we call it the rapture. It's the removal of the church, ushering in Revelation 6-18, to where God will pour out 21 judgments. We'll look at them in about a month from now. And there will be seven seals and seven trumpets, and seven bulls, and there will be an intensity that will grow throughout those seven years. Thus the older theologians call that last three and a half years the Great Tribulation. I give it the Great Tribulation all seven years. This Antichrist is going to be the second prince. He has a lot of names. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet calls him the little Horn. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. We've just finished up 1 John. And in chapters 2, 3, and 4, John calls him the Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 13 and 19, John calls him the beast. All the same individual, a yet unidentified human that is empowered by Satan, Satanized, it demands worship. God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So what does Satan create? The unholy trinity. Does he not? Satan, the antichrist and the false prophet. Jesus suffers a mortal wound. And so will one of them. They suffer a mortal wound and rise again. Jesus is worshiped in the temple. What does the antichrist do? He builds a rebuilt temple and set up an image of himself to be worshipped. He's an imposter. And this is coming. It's coming ahead of us. Now this is what I want us to hear. I'm going to make a strong case, at least I think it's strong, for a pre-trib, pre-millennial point of view. That's what I hold. But I have great friends, godly friends, wise, scholarly friends, who don't hold all the same details that I hold. That's okay. We agree with what is essential. Jesus wins. Jesus returns. Those who have placed their faith in Christ will spend eternity with God in heaven. And those who have not will be suffering an eternity separated from God in a literal eternal hell. So I'm gonna make my case but if you have slightly different details, we can get to heaven. Maybe we'll all find out we're slightly right and slightly wrong. Let me tell you one of the reasons I'm a pre trib, premillennialist. If you look at the book of Revelation, it's 22 chapters. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. John is very familiar with this word. We have five books that John wrote. He uses the word a lot. He uses the word 20 times in the book of Revelation. He uses it a lot in the first few chapters. We have the seven historical churches of Asia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia. He uses it at the end of the book in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. But do you know when John never uses the word Ecclesia, the church, not even once? Revelation six to nineteen. Forgive me, my all millennial post trib, pre wrath and pre trib friends. You don't have an explanation for that. But I do. Church is not mentioned in those chapters because the church is not on earth. The Lord has removed the church. Now they'll they'll push back and say that's an argument of silence, weak argument, Jeff. I think it's strong, but whatever. A second reason I happen to be pre-trib and pre-millennial is that I see no other way to, to take what I see in Revelation 7, 11, Romans 9 and 11 and Jeremiah 30 and put them together. So what's in those chapters? It's the regrafting of the Jews into the family of God. Romans 9, 10 and 11 tells us the time is coming when an unbelieving nation, an unbelieving people group will come to a saving knowledge, they'll be regrafted in the family of God, they will believe in Christ. Revelation 7 tells us the 12,000 from 12 tribes, 144,000 Jews, will come into a saving knowledge of Christ. Revelation 11 tells us how it's going to happen is during the tribulation, God is going to send down two witnesses, we'll get to them another lesson. And those two witnesses will proclaim Christ and many Jews will come to a saving knowledge. Listen to how Jeremiah put it in the Old Testament. This is Jeremiah 30, verse seven. Alas, that day, it has to be the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, for the Jews. Yet, they shall be saved out of it. So after... That day. After that day, there will be a regrafting of the Jews into the family of God. That pushes me very strongly to at least a literal tribulation, if not a pre trib position. Well, back to Matthew 24 4 to 8. Leading up to this, the Lord says that there are going to be signs. There are going to be birth pangs. And he tells us that we need these signs, verse 4, so that we are not alarmed, so that we are prepared, so that we are ready. What are some of the signs? He tells us that one of the signs is that there are going to be false teachers, false prophets, false teaching, even some who will claim that they are the Christ. And in about the 30 years that I've been pastoring, I would say, that here in the Western world, the ignoring of God's morals, the ignoring of God's ethics, the ignoring of God's word, the increase in schools that call themselves Christian, but they do not teach the word of God, seminaries that call themselves Christian, they do not teach the word of God, that has been growing. And so one of the birth pangs is that the closer we get to the imminent, that's the right word, Whatever tradition you're in, imminent, which means at any moment Christ can return. Maybe today, maybe before I'm done, maybe a thousand years from now. Be prepared, be alert. He is coming, the imminent return of Christ. One of the signs of the imminent return of Christ is that there will be more false teaching. I'm not talking about differences in understanding sincerely the end times. Godly, sincere, knowledgeable, wise individuals have come to different conclusions, all very orthodox. And we're talking about false teaching. We're talking about tier one doctrines. We're talking about denying the inerrancy and the inspiration of God's word. We're talking about denying that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hear, o Israel, the Lord, our one, is, the Lord our God is one. We're talking about three in one, the Trinity. We're talking about the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God and fully man. We're talking about the fact that we are totally depraved, which doesn't mean that we are as evil as we can be. It just means that every part of our being is tainted with sin. We're talking about salvation by faith in Christ alone and in no other but Jesus Christ. We're talking about an eternal heaven to be had by those who believe in Christ, his death, as the payment, the atonement of our sin. His resurrection is evidence after the grave. We're talking about an eternal hell. We're talking about the church being the bride of Christ. Tier one doctrines. These are the ones that are under attack by false teachers because they lead people away from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the closer we get to the imminent return of Christ, the more we should expect false teachers, false prophets, false teachings. In addition to that, verses six and seven says that wars and rumors of wars, we're gonna see an uptick and we're gonna see an uptick in famines and earthquakes. Hasn't that been true? We finished the 20th century with more people dying in war than any other century. We have World War I and World War II and the Cold War. And we could mention Korea and Vietnam and many other wars. It was a century of wars and this has been no different. And then earthquakes. They're increasing. In any given year worldwide, we have 20 major earthquakes, 7.0 or higher on the Richter scale. We have 20,000 smaller earthquakes from 4.0 to 6.99 on the Richter scale. And that number at least as we know recorded history, seems to be increasing. It's an uptick. And what we're told in the text is the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more we can expect these type of phenomenon to occur. And verse eight says, these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Again, I take these quite literally Not figuratively, because that to me is the most easy way to understand the text. So what are we to say? Let me offer three concluding thoughts. My first thought comes from verse 6. It says, see that you are not alarmed. I think in the last 15 to 18 months... We have seen the church more alarmed than any time in my life. We are alarmed on whatever side you're on and all these issues. We're alarmed politically. We're alarmed on COVID. We're for masks. We're against masks. We're for the administration. We're against the administration. We're for vaccine. We're against vaccine. And I think the church has not walked through its finest hour. Not just this church. The church. The church. It is estimated that in the next two years, 25 to 33% of American pastors are going to resign because this was a terrible 18 months. Highland will have no pastors resign. So, at least not that I know of. So it wasn't as terrible for us as others. But what caused such alarm? I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with what happens politically or medically. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it might be that the church across the world took its eyes off of the Lord and forgot who was on the throne. And no matter what position we take medically, no matter what position we take politically, and we should take positions, absolutely, we still have to remember the Lord is on the throne. And if we went through 15 to 18 months where the church Was really at its throat with one another. Read Facebook. It was not our finest hour. Again, not talking about Highland necessarily. Worldwide, it was not our finest hour. If we did that over a disease, and the Bible says that we're heading to a period of time where judgments are coming, and it's going to get worse and worse the closer we get to the Lord. How are we going to react? The Bible says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. We can be politically savvy. We can be medically savvy. We can have our positions. But remember who's on the throne. And if we manage that in 15 to 18 months worldwide, we've got to do better the closer we get to the time of Christ. And I don't... That's not picking on one side. That's picking on all of our sides. I think we've got to do a little bit better. Rather than alarm point two, we've got to be prepared. That's what the text says. In fact, I'm going to be rather boring the next eight weeks because I'm going to be constantly saying, be prepared, be alert, be on point, be ready. In fact, I think I've just given you the next four sermon titles. I don't know. It's just what the text is going to say over and over again. What does it mean to be on point, to be ready, to be alert for the imminent any moment return of Christ? It means to be found doing the things that Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be women and men of prayer and of the book and of evangelism and of family and care for the king and his kingdom. And We want to be ready when he returns. So we're told, don't be alarmist, be prepared for the king is coming. And finally, I think of First Thessalonians four thirteen and 17, that's the text that says that the trumpet sound, the dead in Christ shall rise. And then you remember how it ends, encourage one another with these words. In other words, our eyes ought to be on the fact that the next great event in history is the return of Christ. That's true for my all-millennial friends. That's true for my pre-mill, pre-trib friends. Sorry, you mid and pre-wrath and post, it's not quite the next event for you, but that's okay. For the rest of us, the next great event that's coming is the return of Christ. You remember what Paul said in Titus two thirteen, waiting for our blessed hope, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you know how the early church would greet one another as they would come into the sanctuary or house and out of the sanctuary or house? It's not only with a holy kiss, which I interpret to be a handshake, just in case you're wondering. They would say Maranatha, an Aramaic word, which translates as a phrase, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's how they greeted one another, Maranatha, because they wanted to remind themselves not to be alarmed. You know, a nation that had a lot of alarm would have been the Jews in the first century. Man, talk about living in a very difficult time. Be a Jew in the first century. But rather than an alarmist life, they wanted to live in the imminency, the any moment of Christ's return, and they greeted one another, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that's what the Lord is calling our hearts to be like, to be ready for the return of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we look at the end times, allow us to have grace with one another, knowing that probably none of us are going to get all the details right. But we know that you, when your son is on the throne, and allow us to keep our eyes on your son, to live in expectation of the imminent any-moment return of Jesus. Father, allow this to be our heartbeat, regardless of our theological position, knowing that your Son is coming. And what a day that will be. Paul says it's our blessed hope. May it be our blessed hope. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.